Hello, Christ Church. My name's Mike Woodruff. We're downtown filming for the upcoming fall sermon series, What If? Conversations for a Better World. We've been having some man-on-the-street interviews, asking people about the Ten Commandments, learning some things, hearing some fun things. What might it look like if we actually took God seriously and leaned into the guidelines, the directives that he has given us in order to live better and thrive? I'm excited about this series. I want you to be excited about this series. I want you to invite your friends. I want you to plan. Starts September 16th. Goes for 10 weeks. It's a fall series, so we got all the bells and whistles. We got a guidebook. We got support for you. This is going to be big. So join us for What If Conversations for a Better World. Well, good morning and welcome to the fall. Football games in 50-degree temperatures. I guess the fall is here. Welcome to those joining us at uh, Crossroads Highland Park. And again, now that we have reopened up the 01 after that remodel. So um, about a month ago, I heard Simon Sinek, uh, a business writer and thinker and one of the guys that has one of the more popular TED Talks out there, heard him give a presentation contrasting finite and infinite games. And he said all this in the context of the the Tet Offensive in Vietnam back in 1968. And he said that in 1968, this this surprise attack was launched, and then over the course of the next few months, there were lots of sort of mini Tet Offensives that happened. And he said, what's not well understood by lots of people who just know a little bit about Vietnam was that Virtually every battle was won by the, uh, the American and South Vietnamese forces against the North Vietnamese onslaught at Tet. He said the, the numbers of, of, of people killed on both sides, it was exponentially higher for the North than it was for the U.S. and South forces. But, he said, remarkably, over time, although the South and U.S. uh, soldiers were winning every battle, there was a sense in which the war was being won by the North. And he said that's because, his explanation, the, the U.S. was very much fighting a finite game. And the North were, were thinking of an infinite game. And then he set this up to say, finite games... Uh, have very specific rules, like football. So I was at a football game Friday in Union City, Michigan. My father was, uh, who's passed away, but my father's 1948-49 Union City Chargers went undefeated and untied, and they were being inducted into the Union City Hall of Fame. So I was at a football game. Many of you watched football games last night, or will watch them tonight. Football has very specific rules. There's a, very, there's, there's a limited number of players. It's very well defined. And there are referees. And there's a time period. And at the end of that time period, you know who won and you know who lost. It's very specific. Infinite games are not like that. Infinite games, it's not always clear what the playing field is. It changes. It's not, there's no definition in terms of the rules. There's no definition in terms of how many people can be on each side. Your opponents can change. Everything is very fluid, and there's no time limit. 
In an infinite game, no one ever stops and declares winner or loser. In an infinite game, you simply are trying to be able to play the game again tomorrow. So Sinek has made these contrasts, and he says a lot of times, although life is an infinite game, we have all these analogies to to finite games. And business is an infinite game, but we look at sports for all these rules. And he says, no, finite rules don't apply to infinite games. And it's an interesting paradigm. His book is coming out. I've already ordered it. I, I learned a lot by framing some things that way. However, I think he's wrong on one thing. He argues that there are no rules in an infinite game and that life is an infinite game. And I want to say, uh, no, there are rules. <laughs> and the rules for life really, in one sense, are the Ten Commandments. Now, I realize that the Ten Commandments have a bad reputation, and some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, the Ten Commandments. I mean, this is old, archaic, heavy-handed. This is a bunch of killjoy declarative statements. Like, I hate the Ten Commandments. I hate the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And then when Jesus gets a hold of them and updates them in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, it's not just you shouldn't murder, but you shouldn't get angry. It's not just that you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't commit lust. They're impossible. They make me feel bad. I hate the Ten Commandments. I get that. Welcome to a series on the Ten Commandments. But here's the deal. You are going to be surprised because uh, these are not what you think. And, and I want to I set the stage today because I think there is so much to be gained and so many opportunities that surround the giving of the rules by God. So stepping back, this summer we spent some time in the book of Exodus. And so um, Brad talked about worship in Exodus. And Anson talked about wandering. And Aaron talked about wisdom. And and Ben talked about work. And we're staying in Exodus because uh, the first time the Ten Commandments appear in the Bible, they appear more than once, but the first time they appear is in the book of Exodus. So stepping back even from that, We have the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which ends with uh, things going reasonably well. So in the book of Genesis, God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants. And then we start to follow Abraham and his descendants. And eventually we get to Jacob and his 12 sons who make up the 12 tribes of Israel They are leaving the promised land that God has given them, and they're going to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And one of the sons, Joseph, who had been sold into slavery by his brothers, has now risen to power in Egypt, and Egypt has food. And so they're moving to Egypt during the famine. So that's where the the book of Genesis ends at that point. Hundreds of years later, the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, begins. And it begins by saying that things are now bad for the Jews. The, 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 the descendants, they've grown to a couple million people at this point, but they're slaves in Egypt. And they're crying out, they're very frustrated, nothing seems to be going right. And then that is when, when God calls Moses, right? So cue the burning bush, and if you, you we get the Pharaoh, we get the ten plagues, if you, if you're 45 and older, then, you know, uh, 
Moses is Charlton Heston and, and the Pharaoh is Yul Brenner. If you're 25 to 45, then maybe it's Christian Bale as Moses. If you're under 25, it's probably some VeggieTales character. I, I'm not sure. But anyway, this is where we get the plagues. We get the parting of the Red Sea. We get uh, manna from heaven. We get water from a rock. They go out in the desert. And this is where they meet on Mount Sinai. God meets with Moses as a representative of the people to, uh, in essence, to define the relationship, right? The, the DTR talk is going to happen I have two, three boys. One of them's married, the two boys that are single. So the whole DTR thing, it, it, it incites fear in the minds of, you know, 20-year-old males. But uh, this is where God says, okay, we're going to define the relationship going forward. And what he gives at that point is the law. And the law is a lot more than just the Ten Commandments, but that's sort of the, that's sort of the, the essence of it. And he gives these rules. So what are the rules and how are we supposed to be thinking about them today, several thousand years later? What are the Ten Commandments? I want to say four things today, only four, about the Ten Commandments. First of all, they are a gift. They were a gift, and they are a gift today. So they were a gift at the time that God gave them because the Jews are coming out of 400 years of slavery. They have no infrastructure. They don't know how to govern themselves. They don't know how to live successfully. They don't know how to have a society that's going to move forward. And so God, who very much needs them to survive and thrive because he's promised the, the Savior of the world is going to come through this lineage. He needs them to stay alive. And they're about to head out, two million of them probably, plus animals, into the desert. And they're going to be living in the desert. right? Because they sort of have this false start to go into the promised land. And so they're going to be in the desert for 40 years. I've been in that desert for a few hours. It's brutal. How are they going to survive? Well, God gives them laws, and these laws are to shape their society. And there are civil laws because they have no lead. Moses is their leader, but God is their king, so they're a theocracy, so they get a bunch of civil law. We don't, that still doesn't apply to us today. They get a bunch of ceremonial laws that govern, for the most part, how sacrifices will be made in the tabernacle later in the temple. Uh, but all that changes. That's the book of Leviticus. It's mostly for the priests. And all that changes because we live on the other side of the sacrifice of Christ. And the sacrifice of Christ puts an end to the sacrificial system. So the, the civil laws don't apply. The ceremonial laws don't apply. But then there's the, the moral law. And the moral law, in its essence, are these ten words or the ten commandments or the decalogue. It's called a lot of different things. And, and they're given by God to the people to keep the people alive. And they are given by God, and these Ten Commandments, the moral law still applies, as a gift to us to understand how the world works. So the first thing I want to say about the Ten Commandments is that they're a gift from God. The second thing I want to say is that we need to think of the Ten Commandments as divine insight into the way the world works. 
Now, for some of you, this will be the time that your mind is going to melt because I'm going to suggest something that is very contrary to the culture in which we live. So the culture in which we find ourselves right now, just for simplicity's sake, I'll say there's two big worldviews that are out there. Two different ways to think. Two different ways to try and define reality. On the one hand, you have those that would, that would, that would subscribe to a sort of scientific, secular viewpoint that says the only thing that's real is what you can touch, what you can measure, what is empirically verifiable. Right? So if, it, if you can't measure it in some way, it's not real. And those who subscribe to this view of the universe, right, there is no God, there's no spiritual world, there's no supernatural world, it's, it's only what we can touch, it's only what we can measure, it's only what can be verified empirically by science. The world is amoral. There, are no, there is no morality. There, there are no rules to this. And, and if, to the extent that there are rules, it's just... It's just somebody expressing their opinion and trying to get everybody else to follow it. Or it's everybody coming together democratically to express a group of a social construct that we're all going to agree to. For instance, we all agree that the speed limit is going to be 30, except in a school zone where it's going to be 20. Other places it might be higher, but we, we agree. This is... This isn't baked into the universe. This isn't part of the DNA of, 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 the, of the universe. We just get together and agree to certain things. And we say, these are the rules. And they're imposed collectively or by a dictator. The rules get established. So there's a whole bunch of people that say, there's no ultimate reality. It's just, we're trying to figure this out. There's another group of people who say... In almost the opposite of, of the, the world is, is just real and tangible and scientific. And they say the world is spiritual and, and, and they're supernatural and we're divine and God is in us and God is everywhere. And used to be we would call this sort of new age thinking. And, and in one sense it, it completely differs from this. This says scientific, secular, there is no supernatural at all. This says there's a supernatural, there's miracles happening, there's, you've got to be in touch with your soul, and all of this is, matters. Where they agree, both this, the scientific, secular, and this, whatever we're going to call New Age, where they agree is to say, this also says there's no rules. Right? The, to the extent that there's a rule, it's you've got to be true to who you are. Right? You need to, you need to live into how you feel. You, but, but the only rule you've got to follow is you've got to maximize who you are and your joy and your happiness. That's, that's in essence the world that we live in right now in the 21st century. So, what I'm going to say is something the exact opposite of that. What we get in this book is the argument that there is in fact a God who is real and personal and laws flow out of his character 
and are hardwired into creation. And the laws that he gives us, that he clues us into, are not arbitrary. They're not just his preferences. They flow out of who he is and what is ultimately real. So you could think of it this way. The laws that we get from God are, are a little bit more like the law of gravity than it is the law of a speed limit. <laughs> now, it's not entirely that because you can violate God's laws and you don't immediately fall back to earth. But ultimately, they're every bit as real as the observation. The laws of God are more descriptions of reality than they are prescriptions by God to impose something on us. And in that sense, it is a great gift to us that God is telling us how things ultimately work. Last week I had a, a friend uh, in town, lives out on the West Coast, and he did his doctoral studies in the philosophy of law. And uh, remarkably, since he completed his doctoral studies 25 years ago, I've never had the urge to ask him, like, what did you learn when you were studying the philosophy of law? That just seemed like something like, well, good for you. You studied the philosophy of law. Somebody probably should. I'm glad you did. I have no interest in the philosophy of law whatsoever. But we're going into a series based on Ten Commandments, and so I said, so give me, you know, the poor man's three-minute version of your doctoral dissertation and philosophy of law. Like, what I'm, I'm getting ready to head into a series on the Ten Commandments, and, and I'm, as I've been studying and, and looking at what God has been doing throughout the Old Testament and the law and see how Jesus interprets it and all that, I go, I'm sort of, I'm sort of understanding that it's that it's the law is a description of reality. It's not something that God imposed. And he says, right. He goes, well, Mike, there's all kinds of law. There's common law. There's natural law. There's divine law. There's perceptual law. There's, you know, and he starts listing all these different kinds of laws. And he says, there's a sense in which what we have with the Ten Commandments is natural law. It's the way things are. It's divine law because it comes from God, but it's the way things have been set up. And so I want to say to you, we, what we get from God is we get insight into the way things ultimately work. I've, I've said before, if, if we had perfect knowledge and a perfect will, we would never sin. Like if we could see everything from beginning to end, if we had perfect insight and the ability to actually do what, what was in our best interest, we would never sin. Because sin is ultimately stupid. It's not simply violating the arbitrary rules set up by God. It is going against the way things ultimately play out. Which leads to the third point. The third thing we need to understand about the law of God, is that it comes from a God who knows everything and loves you. 
So it is, it is perfect advice from someone who is on record as perfectly loving you. Now, this is, there's all kinds of advice out there. I, I just, I looked at my desk. I've got a desk here at the church and a desk at home. And I, I just sort of was looking at the, these are just the books sort of stacked on my desk, right? This isn't the books in bookshelves or in other rooms. And I got all these books with advice, right? You know, here's Ray Dahlia's book on investing. And here's Tim Ferriss's book on how to work smarter. And here's books by people on how to, how to be in better shape. Here's books about how to run fast. I mean, books of advice everywhere, everywhere. And the problem with these books that you pick up is you don't know whether or not it's good advice. Because there's a lot of people just trying to sell books. So you don't know, is this good advice or not? And what we have with the Bible, we have advice that is coming from God. And we have advice that's coming from a God who loves us. So it shouldn't surprise us that we get rules because every religion has rules. Every religion has a list of rules. Here's the difference between the rules we get here and the rules we get in other religions or at Barnes & Noble's books or wherever. We're getting advice here from God, and we're getting advice here from a God who has gone first to demonstrate his love. So the first place that the... Ten Commandments show up is in Exodus chapter 20. So if you back up into Exodus chapter 19, (laughs) you see something that's very important. Exodus 19, what we get is God says, Okay, I brought you out of Egypt. Now obey. And here's the deal. Every other list that we're going to get is Follow this list, and then you'll be accepted. Keep these rules, and then I'll be for you. And what we get in the Bible is, I'm for you. Now, here's rules. Not to be accepted, but here's rules for life that will work and will cultivate greater intimacy between us. Right there. So, Hopefully, you understand that we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, right? Our relationship with God pivots around the work that Jesus Christ has done. What is sometimes misunderstood is the belief that, well, that's the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, we are saved by keeping the law. No. No, no, no. That's not what what the Old Testament says. And that's not what the New Testament says about the Old Testament. Abraham is saved by faith. Right? It, is, it is a gift of God. And the, the big story that unfolds in Exodus is God does all of this stuff for his people. They've done nothing. He does everything for them. And then he says, now that I have rescued you, here's... Here's rules about how life will work and about how you can become the person you want to be and how we will have greater intimacy. 
So we saw Faith's story about adoption. Adoption is a big biblical concept. (laughs) And it's, it's a great image because when a baby is adopted, right, they've done nothing to earn that. That's not, the, that's not the way this goes, right? Nothing to earn that. But then you get invited into the family, and it's like, here's how life works. Here's how family life works. Here's how our relationship works going forward. So what we get from God is advice about how to live from some, someone who is on record demonstrating his love for us. And, of course, as we go into the New Testament, we see that God does everything for us. He risks more. He risks more proving his love for us than we're ever asked to risk. Right? He has gone first. So, the Ten Commandments are a gift. The Ten Commandments are insight, divine insight from God about how life works. They're divine insight from a God who is on record proving that he loves us. Number four. And there's lots of other things that could be said about the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's the basis of Western law. It's, I mean, it's worth noting they're brief. <laughs> and we get rid of the Ten Commandments and we end up with like 35 million laws to replace them, right? I mean, it wasn't a good trade. So uh, there's a lot of other things that can be said about the Ten Commandments. I want to mention one other thing to just go right at this idea that they're negative. And I want to say the Ten Commandments are very positive. So, for starters, they're not all thou shalt not. There are some thou shalt. Secondly, it's worth noting that I don't think it's a negative thing to say, don't murder somebody, don't don't lie to somebody. I mean, these are not necessarily negative things. But more than that, uh, it's, it's worth pausing to understand that there is a grand positive behind every negative. So the, the command not to murder is actually a celebration of life. The command not to commit adultery is a celebration of marriage and family. And to state something negatively is actually very small in terms of its restriction. Right? So it, parents, you have a six-year-old and you say... You can go outside and play. You can play outside. You can do whatever you want. Just don't cross the street. Just don't cross the street. You can do whatever you want. There's a nearly infinite number of things that they could do. But what do they do? I'm bored. I can't do anything. You don't let us have any fun. No, I just said one thing that you couldn't do. You couldn't cross the street, but you can play. There's a swing set. There's a sandbox. There's a dry, you know, all these things that you could do. But, but the limit, when, when we're told what not to do, that's actually very small. I, this really came home to me when uh, 15 years ago we were, Sherry and I were traveling, we were in Belarus, this is part of the former Soviet Union, and we were with friends there uh, who've been here, remarkable leaders in the church in Belarus. And they were taking us on a tour of a Soviet-era museum. And it's sort of fascinating to be in this Soviet museum and, and to think about all this stuff. And mostly it's just military stuff. And, uh, and we're going from one room to the next. And all of a sudden, on one, 
at the end of one room, there was a, a door. The door was wide open, but there was a big door. It wasn't just a regular door. Big door, it's open, and Sherry and I both start to walk through. And Dima grabs us and says, no, 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 um, uh, stay here. And then he and uh, Alona have this conversation in one of the six languages they speak. And then they, uh, he leaves and he comes back a few minutes later and he says, okay, we can go. And I asked him, I said, so what, what was that about? And he said, well, you're an American. He says, Americans think if someone isn't sp- specifically telling me I can't do something, then I assume I can. There's a door. I can walk through it. It doesn't say don't enter, so I can walk through it. He goes, in Russia, you never assume you can do anything unless you're invited to do it. So, the commands that we get, the, the Ten Commandments that we get, are by and large limited to very, we're being, there's a few things that we're being told not to do, but everything else is open. It's, they're very positive. They are insights into the way life works. They are a gift from a God who loves us. So, I'm going to ask you to do four things as we leave. Five, maybe, but. (laughs) As you leave, you'll get a book, this book, what if, and and there's opportunities, you know, to get in a small group, and there's a couple times during the course of the series that we're going to invite you to invite friends to conversations for a better world. So, but, but four things very specifically as it relates to the Ten Commandments. First of all, uh, (laughs) learn them. So, this is not a big ask. And I want to spare you the embarrassment that uh, many suffer who are on record as saying, oh yes, I agree with the Ten Commandments. I think the Ten Commandments are important. I base my life on the Ten Commandments. Okay, so name the Ten Commandments. On average, the people who say, I believe in the Ten Commandments. I base my life on the Ten Commandments, right? This is a Christian country. We need the Ten Commandments in, the, in every capital, right? We need them in the classroom, yeah. When you ask those people to name the Ten Commandments, they get less than four right, including the guy, a congressman from Georgia who gets invited onto the Stephen Colbert show because he is crusading. You get the Ten Commandments into the Capitol in Georgia because we need the Ten Commandments. Everything pivots on the Ten Commandments. We've got to get the Ten Commandments back in school. Colbert draws him out. You're just watching this going, oh, dude, please tell me you know what the Ten Commandments are (laughs) because here it comes. And then Colbert asks him, he got three right. He actually had a list of seven, but four of the ones that he said were commandments were actually not part of the Ten Commandments. So, not hard. There are two tablets. So, Ten Commandments, the first tablet has four commandments on it, and they're vertical. So, no God but God. We're to not have idols. We're to worship God in truth, not, not to have anything that's representing God. We're not to diminish the name and honor of God. And we're to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So there's four commandments that govern a vertical relationship with God. There's then six commandments that govern our relationship with each other. So, uh, number five, honor your parents. Sort of the foundation for the family and all of society. Number six, don't murder. Number seven, no adultery. Number eight, 
don't steal. Number nine, don't lie. Number 10, don't covet. They're so much bigger than that, but you can learn a little bit about There's 10 of them. You can do this. So over the course of the next 10 weeks, you want to be sure you get the 10 commands. At least get in the 90 percentile, right? I mean, come on. And don't go on any talk show until you absolutely have got them nailed down. Second thing I want to encourage you to do with the Ten Commandments is to meditate on them, is to, is to reflect on them. And, and the Sermon on the Mount, to some extent, is Christ's sermon on the Ten Commandments and on the law. And so you can go there to see them developed. So we become like the things we think about. <laughs> this, is, this is basic psychology. We become like the things we think about. We become more and more like the things that we love. We need to replace small things, advice from the Kardashians or whatever might be in that spot with divine insight from the God who loves us. So I want to encourage you. We're, David will reflect and say, the, thy word, the law of God. That's what he's talking about at this point. The, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path, right? There's somebody trying to figure out how to live, and you get the idea that the word of God, these rules, these, these divine insights into how everything works, it's guiding the steps and the decisions that he makes. In the book of Proverbs, we talk about the, the, the law of God is more valuable than silver and gold and precious gems. It's, it's, so we need to reflect on this, think about this, meditate on the law of God. Number three, we need to obey the Ten Commandments. Now, I've already said this is crazy talk. Right? We, live in a, we live in a world where the only, only rules are that you do whatever you want to do. As a matter of fact, in The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis points out that, that it used to be pre-modern world, people spent their lives trying to get their soul and their desires to conform to the law of God. And today we try and get society, we try and use science and technology and anything other people to get everything else to conform to our will. (laughs) This is a radically different approach. I'm going to figure out how to change who I am so that I can be the person I need to be. Here, I'm going to try and get the world and everyone else to change so they're the kind of person I want them to be. So, I've already said, this is radical stuff. But I want to to push and say, the way forward is obedience. Now, just by way of definition, obedience is not simply agreement. We're empty nesters now, so we've moved through the stages of parenting. You know, you're a caretaker, then you're a cop, then you're a coach. We're now consultants, which means we don't, we try not to offer advice unless we're asked, uh, but you, we've sort of moved through all these phases. So we're not in the coach or in the cop phase where we're giving rules or we're offering encouragement, uh, but there was a time when we were doing that, and we, we learned that getting agreement is not the same thing as actual obedience. Okay, yes, you said you were going to do it, but you didn't do it. Those are two radically different things. You agreed you were going to do it. You didn't do it, right? So 
Obedience is not yes. It's not just a head nod to the Ten Commandments. We say it's obedience is hard. And in the moral realm, we have, we have very little experience with obedience today. So I will explain obedience in the context of the physical realm. Because some of you know all about physical obedience. When the alarm goes off, we don't want to get up. I don't want to get up. Right? And, and when it comes time to eat, there's things I want to eat. My, my, my new deal, because I heard somebody say this, was uh, yeah, to ask what the special is at a restaurant and then say, that sounds wonderful. I'll have the oatmeal. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, there's stuff I want to eat. But I, or t- many of you are the, are the CrossFit, you know, disciples, right? Whatever the coach tells me, I'll turn over tractor tires and I'll run wind sprints and do burpees and I'll do all this stuff because I want to get in shape. And, and that's going to take effort. You don't fall into shape. You fall out of shape. And so, so it's going to take effort. I'm going to have to break my will to do the things that are right to get to be who I want to be. And there's a sense in which that applies to growing in faith. But you've got to hear the last point, and with this I end. Number four, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, need to drive us to Christ. So I said that there are three uh, types of law. I said there's the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. There's three types of law. There are three purposes for the law that were given by God. Number one is to give us guidelines about how to live. So the law gives us coaching about how to live successfully. Number two, the law is there to restrain evil, to make a society that works. The third purpose of the law is to help us understand <laughs> that we need a Savior, not simply an example. Right? The law is there, so we have an objective standard, and we say, okay, as opposed to looking around and saying, well, I'm better than he is, I'm doing better than she is, I'm in the top half of the curve, I'm in the top 1%, whatever it is, I go, no, here's the objective standard that I'm supposed to follow. Here's the law. This is what it means. Okay, so when you look at the law, you go, Yeah, no, I can't do that. Each of the Ten Commandments, we will come away going, yeah, no, I can't do that. Like, I can't do that. (laughs) I can't be that person 100% of the time. Doesn't mean I don't try, but it, it means I recognize that I am not earning this, right? It is a relationship based on the work of Christ. It is a relationship based on the love and the grace of God. So the Ten Commandments, uh, they, they serve to give us a light down a path that works, and they also continually drive us back to Christ and our need for a Savior, not just an example. He is an example. We need to follow his example, but he's not simply an example or a teacher. He is, first of all, a Savior. So I would submit to you, what would your life look like if you took these commandments seriously and you let them shape your life? What would society look like if we took these seriously? We're going to head down that path. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the law. Thank you for a Savior, your Son. Guide us, direct us, help us to understand 
who you are and what we're being invited into. Help us to understand your love for us and that, this, that the law is an incredible gift and blessing. May we increasingly uh, follow it as we seek to follow you. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name, amen.